Kara, how are you? Hey, Chris. Hi, I had a rough morning. How are you? Yeah. Probably having a better day than you. I'm a little foggy, but I mean, I did some work, and then I, I wanted to go and get a granola bar for lunch, and I, by the time I wandered over to the store and couldn't find what I was looking for, mm-hmm. a very specific type of granola bar, mind you. I, you know, I went through all the ingredients and all the boxes, and then I was like, they don't have what I want. I'm going to go get it giant roast beef sandwich instead because that's granola almost the same bar thing. roast beef sandwich completely yeah. equivalent i do applaud the roast beef sandwich i woke up at 4 30 this morning with deafening tinnitus and then from there it turns into like this extreme sound sensitivity where any sound makes Ooh. it seem like somebody is hitting a gong next to my head Ooh, good that clapping did not actually oh work my goodness you got on I would, if we were recording this interview this morning, I would have canceled. I mean, flat out would have canceled because like it, it causes physical pain. My doctor is not quite sure, but apparently this is not an uncommon form of migraine. Mm. So I don't know if I now have migraines, but whatever. That's a thing. Migraines are rough. I was in the ER once for a migraine and another time I got a migraine because I was awaiting a surgical procedure that was in the afternoon. They wouldn't let me eat or drink or have any coffee. And, you know, my glasses were off and I was on a gurney and, you know, just like the train wreck of stuff coming together. Mm. I ended up getting such a bad headache that I ended up getting sick right there in the hallway on the gurney under a freak with the door. This is Brooklyn, Brooklyn hospital. Stupid. I named them on purpose because I'm still bitter about it. <laughs> But only a little bitter, clearly. Only just a little. A little. Just a little. I managed to get some work done. I got the what should be final revisions in for the mentorship academics piece. That should Oot. be now done until page proofs. Very exciting. Oot. Who, by the way, our guest today is co-author on that manuscript. Who are we talking to today? I was just thinking about you all and your manuscript as I, I uh, perused her extensive body of work. Extensive indeed. We have Dr. Claudia Vallegia coming on the show today, and she's over at Yale. And I imagine you have a much more detailed description of of her accolades than I do at the moment at hand. So what I can tell you is that Claudia studies human reproductive biology and the ecology and culture in which it develops. Uh, She takes a biosocial and situated approach, which is the interplay between or among, I would say, biology, society, and culture and the, the central role of interpreting lived experiences in those. And some of the specifics, she's got such breadth in how she does this that it's it's mm-hmm. it's amazing. So so like some of the topics she's explored are the correlates of the return to postpartum fecundity, the variation in reproductive hormone levels within and between women in relation to environmental variables, growth and development patterns in infants and children variation in male and female life history and populations experiencing drastic lifestyle changes. And the one I was looking at today in Science Advances, they, they're they looking at the effect of lunar light on sleep patterns and sleep rhythm, just very, very much all over the place in, in, in a good way. And she, she is the co-director, co-PI on two major projects. The first one with Melanie Martin, who is at the University of Washington and is the mentor, the dissertation chair of one of our producers, Delaney Glass. So there's a close connection there. And we're going to talk to her mostly about this project today. It's called 
uh, the CARE program or the Chaco Area Reproductive Ecology Program. And then she's also co-director of the Yale Reproductive Ecology Lab with one of our other recent mm. guests, uh, Richard Bribiescus. Yeah. So super active. Everyone we know has published with Claudia. So I am going huh. to get on this bandwagon. She's also a wonderful human. Including you. Yeah. Well, yeah, not yet. Lovely. It's not published yet. Uh, well, don't yeah. count chickens just yet. But she's also a really, really wonderful <laughs> person. I reached out to her like a year and a half ago asking for her advice on a grant and she gave me so much time and you know read through drafts for me and everything which is part of the reason Brad and I asked her to collaborate with me on the mentorship manuscript because it was a really positive experience incredibly generous with her knowledge and her time and she said something after my profuse gratitude because you know you should be gracious when somebody gives you time and energy and effort and you know with my profuse gratitude she's like stop thanking me and just pay it forward and I'm like all right. That's a really good way to think about it. Like, I will still yeah. thank you, but I will also be sure to be just as generous with folks when they ask me. That's a better uh, way to do it. Do I usually just say, you're welcome for me doing my basic ass job. I don't think it was her job to help me. That's the thing. No. We had no just... formal relationship that she had to be, you know, held accountable to help me in any way. No, she was just that's kind true. and generous. Shall we bring her in? All right. Here we go. Here she comes. Here she comes. There she is. There's Claudia. <laughs> Hey, Claudia. Hey, Claudia. How are you? I'm fine. Right out of breath because I'm running from my class and I thought I would have a quiet space next to my classroom. No, yeah. <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't happen. We've been doing this for four years and I still can't get my text straight. So I'm in a whisper booth in the library and all, all I can hear is crackling in my ears. So I'm like, okay, well, at least it's not just my computer and my tech. It's, right. it's all tech and all computers. Good, very good. Uh, what class were you teaching, Claudia? What did you just come from? I am teaching the shorthand is the bio of women. It's the evolutionary yeah. biology of women reproductive lives, ah, which is a mouthful. I'd love to see that syllabus. Oh, I'll send it to you as soon as we finish. It's undergrad is my favorite class to teach absolutely it is my testing ground for a lot of pedagogical things like indigenous pedagogic approaches freirian pedagogy as you probably know we interviewed your colleague uh, rick a couple yes. weeks ago about his book about men so i'm guessing he has a class on male reproductive health no we always, yours, right? we always then, thought we could do a yin and yang kind yeah. of thing, but no, nope, didn't happen yet. And then in the current climate, it could be seen as too binary. I was getting ready to say it would probably be too much of a setup for yeah. suggesting that there is a binary and yes. that would be a problem. Yeah. I had to put a lot of thought and care into queering up my, my class, which has been very sobering and very enlightening at the same time. So yeah. I'm curious when, and this is an aside, but it's just because I used to teach an anthropology of sex course that's been taken over by a colleague of mine. You know, I, I was sort of waiting for a while for people to push back on some of what I noted was probably more complicated material, but I, I let it be a simplified approach for an undergrad. Basically what I'm saying is I knew it was problematical, but it didn't feel like the culture had caught up to like pinning me to the wall about some of that stuff so i would say it 
But it wasn't until about 10 years into teaching it that I really got pushback from students on some of these issues. And I wonder when you opted to, to make your changes and when that happened to you or if it did. No, it's only a couple of years ago. And yeah. I feel for you, Chris, because you're a white man. <laughs> and this is not an easy time for white men to be teaching about all these issues, right? Well, I did uh, hand it off, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I handed it off to a white woman, but not because of those reasons, because she came in and wanted a new course to start off on that she had already taught. And I had taught it for so long, I was happy to share it. But I did let it go in part because I knew yeah, that it would be yeah. more complicated for me to teach it now. Good move. So we just finished up transgender athletes as a unit in my anthropology and sports class. And I'm co-teaching it with uh, Tracy Canada, who's a cultural anthropologist that we just hired at Notre Dame. And we like split it up between kind of the biology and we have to break down this whole idea that there is a strict sex binary. And so far, I've been really, really happy with the way students have responded in the openness and willingness to ask questions because... For a lot of them, this is the first time they've actually been presented. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Especially with athletes. Like, yeah. that's in the news all the time with the Olympics this past summer. It's something that they are aware of, but they didn't know and the, the research behind it. We did that section two weeks ago. We read your piece at Sapiens, which they loved. So thank you, thank Kara, you. for writing that. And we had a debate on that. It's not an easy topic. And students want answers. One, they, yeah, want, they want something that's like definitive. <laughs> exactly. They want the truth with capital T. Mm -hmm. And I keep telling them this is not the course <laughs> for <laughs> finding. It's not life either. <laughs> it gives science credit, but it's mostly for non science majors, which I love because it's my opportunity to get them engaged. And yeah, most of them think, oh, I'm going to find arguments for my parents or my friends about this. <laughs> uh, I said, well, yeah, you can find some arguments, but we are, you're not going to find the definite answer. Yeah. Before we yeah. jump into your complex vantage on science and, and teaching science, because that's pretty much what we're going to talk about today, we want to know more about you. Let's give our listeners some context. So as we always say, we're about what goes into the sausage, as it were, or into the science. But we also want to know how the scientist is made, because we think that influences the science. So what's your origin story? How'd you get into anthropology? Yeah, well, my life history, it's a little bit unusual in that I was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina. In Argentina, we don't have a college system. So you go from high school straight, choosing a career for life. My choice was biology. So I studied biology for five years after graduating from high school. I studied animal behavior. My thesis, which was equivalent to a master's thesis, was learning and use of opiates in crabs. Is there an opiate epidemic among crabs? Oh, absolutely. Every time a gull, a seagull flies over them, they release opiates. <laughs> so, yeah. Wait, so, so the seagull releases opiates or the crab? The crab, because they get the scared. Response, right? It's a stress response. So, I love this. 
uh, we discovered with those studies that something that is called stress-induced analgesia. Uh -huh. So you lower your pain levels when you're under stress because it's not the time to feel pain. You need to escape. So that was my first incursion into scientific thinking. Uh, is this kind of like Pavlov's orienting response? Not really. It's more along the lines of habituation. So we were, I'm not sure we could do this now because we put the crab in a bowl and cast a shadow, just mimicking the seagull. After 15 trials, the crab doesn't care anymore. And we wanted to know why. Was it habituating to the response, the classical habituation, or, oh, because yeah, I forgot the crucial part. We were delivering also minor electric shock that is supposed to be painful. So after a while, they did not feel the pain. They were not responding to the electrical shock. Are pharmaceutical companies harvesting crab opiates? <laughs> no, no, no. This, no, it? these are endorphins, the thing that we know about. So we release... Okay, so this isn't something like a crab unique no, opiate. No, no. We okay. Okay. no, we studied the crabs because they were simplified models and we could inject, okay. we injected naloxone and everything disappeared. So we proved oh. that it was opiate. So very, very cool stuff. So that was the degree I got at the University of Buenos Aires. I was still very interested in animal behavior, but I couldn't find a program that studied non-human primates, which were my favorite creatures at the time. So together with my husband and colleague, Eduardo fernandez Suque, we decided to pursue our doctoral degrees abroad. So we applied everywhere, Canada, Australia, the United States, but we finally got accepted into the Animal Behavior Graduate Group at UC Davis in California, and we did our PhDs there. My doctoral dissertation was on the sexual and reproductive development of titi monkey females. So I worked at the California Primate Research Center, collected some 5,000 urine samples from titi monkey females, and that was my dissertation. PP from titis, yeah? Exactly. PP from titis. Sorry. Yes. I had to say it out loud. Exactly. So. At that time, when I was writing my dissertation, I was pregnant with my second child. So out there, those of you graduate students who think starting a family is not possible, it is. Of course, I had an excellent partner who very much engaged with raising the kids. So I was pregnant with Facundo, our middle son, and I think the hormones did their trick. And I thought human reproduction was very, very cool. And I started reading papers by Peter Ellison. And I said, this is what I like. This is what I love. And I was very lucky to have Sarah Blaffer Hurdy as one of my advisors at UC Davis. I just went to see her and say, Sarah, I think I'd like to do a postdoc on that. Right there in her office, she picked up the phone and called Peter. Peter said, sure. Yeah, let's start thinking about the project. So that's how I switched from non-human primates to human primates and started studying reproductive ecology, which is my field now. Did your husband do the same switch? No, nope, he stayed with non-human primates. 
and I tried to lure him in, but he's a monkey person, not human person. But I think that's probably really good in that you give each other different perspectives. Absolutely. Something reproductive ecology yeah, from yeah. different points of view. So I think that's actually really great. The fact that you guys have been together through all of that, raising your kids and your PhD and international, man, we could do like five podcasts on you. There's so many intersections with issues. Lots, that... Yeah, lots of, of experiences to share. Yeah, and hope for all, all of you out there that this is <laughs> still possible. Shifting from TT monkeys to humans and that, you know, this is a thing that you love, something that's come out of it, is also you going back to Argentina, which is great, but you are the principal investigator on a large fieldwork project called the Chaco Area Reproductive Ecology Program called CARE. Can you tell us what this project is, what its research focus is, and kind of how you got it started? Because starting up a field site and doing this kind of thing is not easy. It's not easy. You got that right. And there's a bit of a backstory to all this. So here we were, freshly minted PhD people in California, thinking that we would go back to Argentina, our home country, and they would throw the red carpet and receive us with olive branches and things like that there was zero interest <laughs> in what we were doing they thought what are you you're a human biologist you're neither a physician nor an endocrinologist nor what space do you occupy and yeah so there was basically no space for us so with two toddlers in tow we started surviving Eduardo started teaching private swimming lessons and I was doing practice English conversation with CEOs in Buenos Aires. So we were putting flyers in the cars. We were putting flyers at the supermarket parking lot. We looked at each other and said, well, this is not possible. So we packed our family we headed north to the province of Formosa and started our freelance science project. We said, well, we have to sell ourselves. We have to sell what we do here in Argentina. Field project was something that we wanted to do. So Eduardo started his field site in a cattle ranch, working with owl monkeys. And I was interested in breastfeeding and fertility. I needed a population of women who breastfed for a long time intensively that never happened in Buenos Aires. So I was put in touch with an anthropologist who became my friend who worked with ECOM, an indigenous group in Argentina, which of course, as most indigenous people in Latin America, nursed their babies for a long time. And that's how we started, being freelance <laughs> scientists, setting up things and then applying uh, for for funding. Peter Ellison was very graciously uh, working with me in putting together an NIH. Nestle, the company, trying to clean up their act, <laughs> gave us postdoctoral money to study breastfeeding. Uh, so that's how the CARE project started in 1997. So we are about to celebrate our 25th anniversary working with the com can i ask about nestle really quick is that because of all of the work they did to 
de-incentivize breastfeeding with formulas and stuff? Yeah, I think there is some PR there and some social responsibility. Did they approach you or did you approach them? It's the Nestle Foundation. Mm -hmm. It's a subsidiary of the company that has, I think they still do, they have uh, fellowships and awards for research that involves breastfeeding different countries. You guys weren't employed at this point, is that what you're saying? No, yeah, we were unemployed, living off our savings. Wow. And with two kids. With Holy two cannoli. kids. We persevered and said, well, this is what we want to do. And we were able to sell our projects to funding agencies. And that's how my postdoctoral experience started. I first did field work for two years collecting data on breastfeeding practices and fertility, the return to postpartum fertility. Eduardo got his funding from the San Diego Zoo. And so we were there for a while, came back to the States to analyze the samples at Peter's lab at Harvard University and went back to the field. We had like six years of postdoc going back and forth. Joaquin came into the picture, our third son, How'd you do all that? How'd you support the family? I mean, because I had triplets. That's, we lived off alone. Yeah. I'll be paying for the rest of my life. I can only imagine. Well, postdoctoral funding included the salary for us. Okay. And right. it was a very good time for us, not for Argentina, because the dollar exchange was very favorable for us. So we were able to do a lot with our postdoctoral salary. So that's how we, we survived. And then I applied for job positions, got hired at the University of Pennsylvania in the Department of Anthropology. And after eight years, Yale was very good at luring us, both Eduardo and I, into coming here at Yale, and we are very happy here. So the interesting thing you said is that this project is having its 25th anniversary this year, right? Next year, yeah. Next year, so 24 years. That's a long-running field site, and that's absolutely amazing. And I think that's one thing that makes this so unique is this great longitudinal data set that you have. It's quite mm -hmm. rare uh, for anthropological research. Uh, was that kind of your initial goal? Was that the design to keep this going for literal decades? Or was it you just kind of kept going to see what would happen? How did that kind of play out? That's an excellent question. I don't think I had the forethought of planning all this. It just happened. But I have to also note that I'm working in my country. I'm working with my people. Uh, so that made things a lot easier in terms of knowing the culture and visiting family when I was in the field. So it all aligned in such a way. And very importantly, how welcoming was the community that they very patiently allowed me to sit with them and ask uh, weird questions <laughs> and, and collecting all kinds of bodily fluids so they were wonderful they were wonderful and made things a lot easier for me than if i had gone to a completely different culture and, and country they speak spanish most of them so that was a common language. So things got aligned in very good ways for us. 
So starting a project like that from the ground up, I get the sense from how you proposed what you'd like to talk about in the commentary that you sent us, mm -hmm. that you have seen over the arc of your career, both the positive and the negative side of, of method measurements and, and how we conduct research and how we do analysis. Uh, probably you've done them all also, right? So I'm curious as to what some of the instigating issues in recalling the series methodological pluralism in human biology or, or methods and measurements, what has pushed you toward being increasingly conscientious about how measurement is done and how our methods are employed for our research? I would like to rephrase the question instead of what, who, <laughs> who pushed ah. me? And that is my husband. That is Eduardo. Eduardo has been thinking along this line for much longer than I have, close to 10 years now. And he kept drilling and drilling, and I was stubbornly saying, no, I don't care, I don't care. That's... And he finally convinced me. And I think the piece of reading that made the whole difference was a 2016 paper by the American Statistical Association that really put things in perspective for me and the way we were using statistical significance in the way we thought about science that was completely misguided. And I started reading papers like, oh, oh my goodness, this is, yeah, this makes total sense. So together with Eduardo, we started thinking possible strategies to shake up the system and trying to call of attention and raising awareness that we are not doing things right, that we are putting the card before the horse and that we are relying on a very arbitrary dichotomous form of determining whether a finding is significant or not. Can you unpack what we mean? I'll set it up a little bit because yeah. you call for articles to be guided more by their biological significance uh, rather than just statistical significance or biological meaningfulness, I guess is what you right. say. So, so to be clear, I am not saying that we should drop p-values or statistical analysis. No, absolutely not. I'm saying that we need to change the mind frame and start thinking the way we thought before we came to science in a very naive, if you want, way, because this is biological data you're talking about. It's not a coefficient, it's not chi-key index, it's not a statistical parameter. These are hormone values, these are length of bones, these are weight changes. Thinking about the variables we study that they belong to real people living in the world. So we come with an expertise that gets totally erased when we decide whether a result is significant or not by looking whether it is above or below 0.05. So where is our judgment? Our judgment as experts. And I would like, yeah, of course, publish the p-value, put that in context. If you report the results 
In addition, I would say, don't give me the beta parameters because I don't think that way. But if you want, give me the table. And for people who are interested in that, they can look at that. But give me the real thing, the magnitude of the fact that the take-home message. Yeah, what does this mean? Many times we don't know what it means, but be open about it. So we find a statistically significant difference between these two groups in hormone levels, right? Okay, so let's say it's 20 microliters. How is that relevant? Biologically meaningful. Right. So does it make any sense? Should we do something about it or not? So use your expertise to put the results in context. If our life depended on it, you would not trust statistical significance. If we were physicians or researchers in the medical world, where lives depend on the results of your research, you would be much more careful. And that is what we, together with Eduardo, we are trying to raise awareness of. Like, stand by your expertise. And so that becomes the big question of raise awareness, but also critical training for graduate students and early career folks, because we have all had it knocked into our heads, various statistical tests and what they mean and significance values and all of these things that we have to do. It's hard to start thinking about it another way. So what might you suggest or recommend to change that way of thinking and the training, yeah. uh, particularly for graduate students? That's an excellent, excellent question. We have been pondering about this a lot because of course we are both full professors we can do whatever you want we we can afford to just publish this thing or say no to the reviewer i'm not going to do this because this is wrong but what about junior colleagues that need to publish right and they are pushed back and say no 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 you need to report this is not significant not statistically significant you need to report this um anyway I think the message has to come from above, the divine. <laughs> she, she motions up above and says that there's a, someone up there. To... Yeah, the, the, the divine powers I think, I think, of... I think we're above, you and I as full professors. So you, you... Yeah, of course, there is a trickle-down thing. But who is above us? Funding agencies, editorial boards Good point. that can say, you know what? in your paper have a section that is biological significance in your paper have a section that contrasts this that shifts the focus away from statistical significance into a more contextualized narrative so this is not something i just came up with this is a recommendation from the american statistical association that there needs to be institutional change. So it is the Human Biology Association through the journal, it is the AABA through the journal that needs to say, you know what, we are shifting the way we are reviewing these papers. So it doesn't fall on the junior authors to say, well, yeah, my professor says that I should do this or that, or no, it is expected 
from the journal that you devote time to this thinking energy to these issues. And what's so weird about this is in some ways it's a return or sort of circling back around to not just where we started before we became PhD scientists with the statistical training, but Herd Lischko, you know, when he started the American Journal of Physical Anthropology, AJPA, soon to be AJBA, he did not accept anything with statistics used and he didn't believe in statistics. And you know, the use of statistics is really only a hundred years old. It's slightly younger than our discipline in general. So what we're talking about is to have a biological sense, anatomy and physiology sense going in and be able to explain everything independent of statistics. And the other thing I'm, I'm thinking about is psychology, where you're not necessarily talking about biological mechanisms, but they're looking at psychological constructs and maybe even if they don't think about the neurological correlates there is still implicit biological underpinning but without being able to explain the biological mechanisms they will do something like do multiple studies to triangulate and replicate and validate within one publication which is something that's frequently missing i think in our field absolutely and we have lost the sense of really delve into the uncertainty of what we are doing, which goes back to a conversation we had about giving the answer and the truth. We have to embrace uncertainty. And by embracing, I mean, really, in the paper, say, well, this is the cloud of uncertainty that surrounds our results. This could be something that is meaningful or not. And it's, there's nothing wrong about it because that's the way science moves. You refine things to narrow that cloud, to make things more understandable. I also think, and, and part of this is, I think, Bill Leonard's leadership with the AJH. I have been in my own work putting a lot more theoretical sort of thing. There isn't the statistical significance to demonstrate the validity of a hypothesis acting forward, but it is still pushing forward like a biologically meaningful explanation for what might be going on. And I feel like I have gotten knocked down for that in review at other journals or in the past. And recently now, I feel like I'm actually getting more support to put those things through. So there might be some changes on the horizon from the review respect. I hope so. Together with that comes, I think, a decision to put more emphasis in visualizing, not the tables with all those coefficients and the stars with, it looks like, starry night, but conceptual diagrams, causal diagrams, if you can, or give me a box plot that allows me to see the real data, the, the dispersion and how the, it is packed, right? So those kind of changes that are not huge, they are small changes that may get us closer to a more valid and robust science. It took me several years of playing with data and finally hitting a wall in terms of not finding anything significant before I even trusted anything I had ever found or published before. Yeah. Because I kept thinking, what am I doing that these results are coming out significant? And, you know, on the one hand, if you 
not going to toot my own horn here because I've designed some bad studies and done some mismeasurement along the way. But I think if your study's sound, you know, the idea that you will find significant results shouldn't be a surprise, right? You knew that going in and you're not going to get all this money to be able to do some of these projects. But knowing some of the shortcuts that you can take in variable building or, or biomarker assays or, you know, just stuff that just as an example, you know, like people leaving things in their trunk with saliva samples. And then I'm like, do I analyze this? And I'm, I'm a grad student. Of course, I'm going to analyze it. I need all the data I could get. And I'm like, what do you do if someone leaves it in their trunk? Nobody has an answer. And I'm like, well, just put it in the data set and don't say anything, you know, like, Maybe when I'm later down the road, I'll admit that that was part of it. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that we just know about. And yeah, and the p-value is just the tip of the iceberg. Tip of the iceberg. Because there's a lot of issues that have to do with design, to the way we think about the concept. That's why, and you can interview my other students, I drill them with conceptual diagrams. Just draw me a conceptual diagram because... It's an opportunity to visualize what you're talking about and spotting weak links and things. So, very clarifying. I literally gave a grad student this advice like two weeks ago, like just draw it out. Try to figure out your own thinking and you can't do that with it just like this in your head. You need that physical mapping on paper. Absolutely. And that is the beginning of thinking scientifically. And, and so identifying questions as yeah. well. Right. That's going to show you the gaps. And then things get so much easier at the time of thinking about the analytical framework because it's there and you know which variables you need to analyze. It makes sense. It's kind of a cultural appropriation thing from public health using this type of diagrams. But I think we should go ahead and use them. So you work with indigenous populations and I'm curious if there, it feels like there's an ethical connection here between p-hacking and just getting anything out to establish our careers when it's based on research we've done with indigenous populations and the right way to do science if you're working with anyone, frankly, but yeah. especially people who have mm-hmm. limited access. I wonder if any of that bears on your, your interest or if you could speak to that. Oh, of course, of course. Over the last, I think, maybe five, four years, I've been stopping and thinking about the way the CARE project has done science, the way we interact with the community. We've always been very grateful for that patience, but we can do more than that. And we can incorporate indigenous methodologies to our scientific enterprise to, to get what is called the co-creation of knowledge, which I haven't done before. So I'm learning as I go, and I have no qualms on saying that it is a very humbling experience. And I've been talking with my com friends about the best way to do it, the way they see science being done, the immediate rewards that both of us need in terms of getting a project done. Community-based participatory research is like a buzzword, but when it comes to real lives and real conversations with people who are marginalized, are being discriminated against, we have to do more than performative 
things. We need action and we need to genuinely incorporate their voices. It's not easy. I'm still trying to figure out what is the best way to do it. I think that's a really great way to kind of put it together and also recognize that there aren't easy answers and it's going to be humbling and you have to do that pause, recognize that you don't know everything that's going on and you, you cannot speak fully for the groups of people that you work with and what they might want out of these projects and what to happen with them in the future. I work in the field as well in a culture that is not mine and it is not an easy thing to figure all of that out and, and understanding all of it. But anyway, to, to, to wrap things up, we've had some amazing like high level discussions today. This has been a really great kind of state of the field and moving forward, both methodologically and also the culture of our field. So thank you for bringing those perspectives uh, to the show today, Claudia. And we just like to end with uh, a fun question. Uh, we want to hear how you integrate your personal and professional life, uh, what you do for fun, what hobbies you may have, or what you're watching, reading, or listening to these days. Yeah, I am so privileged, so lucky to live by the ocean. Uh, so we, we live in Madison, which is in the, on the shoreline by the Sound. And I go on walks on the beach uh, very often. Yesterday we had lunch at the beach. So that's one of my favorite things, be walking there and this Hamonasset State Park, which is an amazing stretch of beaches with trails, bird watching. So that's what I do. And my second hobby is cooking. I am an Italian mom, so I cook a lot. Uh, it, it is the way I channel my creativity in the kitchen. So what does Argentine Italian in Connecticut look like? Because my wife's Italian-American, so I'm familiar with that, and I've had some Italian friends via uh, Argentina, but I, I didn't get to eat with them. So Well, it's a nice fusion because at home there's a lot of beef, a mm. lot of asados, barbecues, empanadas, but there's a lot of pasta too. Uh, so that's the way. Uh, and it's, uh, Connecticut is full of Italian-Americans, so I, I feel at home. Sure enough is. Yeah. yeah. I come from an Italian family as well, and, you know, the four-foot-nine, the Sicilian grandmother and everything. <laughs> right. So the four-course meals and everything, and, and sitting for a long time at the table. Do you do Feast of the Seven Fishes for uh, Christmas Eve and all that? <laughs> no, 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 not to that extent. But yeah, yeah. Now uh, we are all looking forward to Thanksgiving, which is something that we have adopted. And my kids would not move. I say, well, let this year let's do Ethiopian food. <laughs> and they said, no way. We want the turkey and all the trimmings. So. Yeah. I tried to do that with my wife's Italian family when I cooked their Feast of Seven Fishes Italian-American Christmas Eve thing. I just, I didn't try to switch to a different ethnic cuisine. I just tried to switch the fishes and the riot that ensued oh, yeah. was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Come on, people. It's, it's still possible. I've been trying to implement uh, Sunday gravy for Thanksgiving <sighs> and I get pushback on that. So. No, no, yeah, absolutely not. Yeah. So I want to point out that, that our guest, Claudia Valegia, uh, I wasn't sure if you pronounced it with the Spanish well, way I, or Italian I, way. Claudia Valegia is the way we, they pronounce it here. Yeah. 
Claudia Valegia is in uh -huh. Spanish. Uh -huh. Claudia Valegia is in Italian. Well, so, love that. And I, I respond I to any <laughs> of those versions. <laughs> so you have a whole bunch of things out recently. We didn't talk to you about the research stuff today, and we're, we won't because that's not what you suggested we talk about. But we'll have to have you back on because there's there's how lunar light affects sleep. Yes. There's a paper coming out on C-reactive protein in Samoa. There's all kinds of interesting work yeah. that's going on in your two groups. And I'm super jazzed that as long as I've known you, I didn't know the breadth and I have I have some reading to do. So it, I encourage our guests to go track you down on your website and you're on Twitter. I am Valeria Claudia. And of course they can look you up at Yale and email you and all that. Yes. So we want to thank you so much for joining us today. No, I, I, yeah, I want to thank you for giving me this space to <laughs> do a little bit of preaching. Well, sure. So yeah, this has been a lot of fun and I would like to keep talking. Great. Thank Great. you so much thank you. and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. You too.